Good evening to you. Mark chapter 10 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation in Mark chapter 10. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the guys coming up the aisle right now with a Bible and they'll get it into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight. Jesus is in the final months and really weeks of his uh, ministry, public ministry before uh, his cross, uh, the death on the cross and his burial and his resurrection. We pick things up in chapter 10 at verse 13. And then they, that is the parents, they brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them. And it was a common practice in the ancient world surrounding uh, a famous rabbi. Uh, the uh, rabbis that the parents respected for knowing God and having a relationship with God, the desire was that they could bring their children to such a rabbi who had such a relationship with God and that that rabbi would pray for a blessing uh, upon their children. And of course, these parents, as they bring their children to Jesus for that blessing, they're getting far more than uh, simply a rabbi or a Jewish teacher, uh, even as, at, at their best. And so the idea of touching them uh, and, and blessing them. But the disciples, as they came with their children, they rebuked those who brought them. So it's kind of like, I don't know how strong the rebuke was. Rebuke's a strong word. It's like, get out of here. You know, he's, he's, he's busy. I mean, he's got a lot on his plate, and he doesn't have time to carve out for you bringing your children and, and uh, as, as if little children could be that high of a priority. I know they are in your mind, but they're probably not in his mind or in God's mind in that way. But when Jesus saw that they were rebuking the parents who were trying to bring their children to him, he saw it and he was greatly displeased. And the original language is very strong. Uh, Jesus is very sanctified, but... Um, he was very upset with the disciples for fending off uh, parents, bringing their children to him uh, for blessing. And he said to the disciples, let the little children come to me. And now he rebukes the disciples as they had rebuked the parents. He said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. So that's clearly what they were doing. For of such is the kingdom of God. And he said, Verily, verily, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by uh, no means uh, enter it. And uh, so he speaks of the children here now and, uh, and of such is the kingdom of God. And he, he elevates the children. So they, they were despised. They were looked down upon by the disciples. And Jesus was saying, related to the kingdom of God, the children have a great deal to uh, teach us. Nobody comes into the kingdom of God. Nobody is born again into the kingdom of God without becoming, not childish, but becoming childlike. In what regard? I think the key word that Jesus is commending in children is found in verse 15, and it is the word received. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means uh, enter in. And uh, the, the young children are great receivers. 
uh, when they are offered something, uh, offered a gift, they receive it very, very readily. And, uh, and they'll never turn down a good gift. It never even enters into their mind to uh, turn down a gift. And when a gift is being offered to them, it never enters into their mind that a gift is something that you now have to earn in some way. Children receive gifts that are being given to them. It's only as we get a little bit older uh, that we become a little more jaded in life. We think there's a string attached to things and we're less uh, prone to simply uh, receive something that is extended to us. And we've lost uh, a childlikeness in that regard uh, that isn't, uh, isn't good. And so uh, concerning salvation, young children have more to teach us than we have to teach them in this regard. And that is, you know, when God offers you, uh, when anyone offers you a gift, receive it. When God offers you the gift of salvation, uh, be sure to receive it. And, uh, and he commends uh, childlikeness in, in this regard. And then he took the children, uh, you know, individually, it would seem, and put them, uh, took them up in his arms. It's a beautiful picture here of Jesus. He then laid his hands on them, and, and then he blessed them. He pronounced a blessing uh, upon the children. And uh, a beautiful passage. I can't help but think of my own mother in this regard. Anytime I come to the passage, she struggled in life a great deal, but the one, and, and man, her getting through life just on her own was a, a major achievement as best as she could. And so she couldn't get a lot of things uh, uh, right or, or done, but she did get this right in uh, my twin brother and my two youngest sisters in that uh, she got us to church. She brought us uh, to Jesus, and this is a, a commendation of bring every child to the Lord, and the Lord has a blessing for that child, uh, and, and Jesus offers a blessing to a child that no one else in the whole world can uh, provide them with. And, uh, when, and, and I think the Lord honored my mother when she would bring us uh, to church. It was the idea that God would bless us, and uh, every time we went to church, He blessed us. He honored my mother's, uh, you know, desire. Uh, in her heart for us. The interesting thing for the four of us is that that wouldn't look like anything for years. It looked like everything was going in one year, year and out the other and was making no difference in our lives, but it was making a deep impact. God was blessing us each time my mother brought us to church. And He does the same thing with us. As we raise our children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, bring them to Him, He will bless and He will honor uh, our efforts within, within their lives. It doesn't mean that as we raise a child up in the nurture and the admonition uh, of the Lord, that they will always appreciate it, that they will always uh, honor it for the sacrifice that it was in their life. Uh, they may even, as many of us know in our lives, even despise that kind of a heritage through uh, a, a good portion of their adult life. And our hope and our prayer is that they'll turn, uh, realize what was entrusted to them, and they will turn to the Lord. But the one confidence we have is even if our children do not treasure this heritage and God's rich blessing in their lives, in their, in their childhood, is that when we look at them and we can see our children so often so far away from the Lord, 
we know and, and, and have the kind of the, the uh, confidence as we pray to God and say, God, we gave you everything that we uh, knew to give you in raising this child in the things of you, and, uh, and now we entrust them to you and, and ask that you would not allow what was poured into their lives to return void. And, and one of the great blessings that is in a parent's life is even when their child has turned away from this rich heritage is the knowledge that I gave God everything he asked for as best as I could in training this child and bringing this child uh, to Jesus. They do have a free will with whatever it is that they might do uh, with, that, with that heritage, but uh, that confidence of knowing, Lord, we did that, we put it in your hands, and now uh, don't let it return void uh, within their lives. And so he blessed them, he blesses every child that is brought uh, to him, and uh, aren't you glad? <laughs> so uh, we have a place to bring our children, and we don't have to raise them in the severe limitations of our uh, ignorance. And then as he was going on, uh, 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 going out on the road, and the disciples and Jesus are walking, uh, 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 one came running. So there's an urgency here, isn't there? And uh, the man that's going to be introduced to us in, in just half a verse here is known as the rich young ruler. And uh, uh, these kind of characteristics concerning him are given to us mostly in Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, uh, where we're told that he was, Matthew tells us he was rich and he was young. Luke's gospel tells us that he was a ruler uh, in some kind of a spiritual setting uh, in, within Judaism. So he, he is young, he is wealthy, and, and he has power. And all the things that the world tells us is going to satisfy in life, but it doesn't satisfy him. Uh, there's an urgency to him, and he comes running up to Jesus. Picture it in your mind. And then he kneels down in front of them as they're walking uh, on the path. And then he asked him, he asked Jesus. So he's not just uh, rich and young and a ruler, but he's also wise because he's got a question on his mind, and he brings his question, spiritual question, to the highest authority you can ever bring a spiritual question to, and that is Jesus. And so he said, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit everlasting life? So he's not only rich, he's not only young, he's not only a ruler, he's not only wise, but he's thoughtful. He's got all of these things. He's got, it, he's got life is made for, it, it, he's got it made. He doesn't have the worries that 95% of us in this uh, room have and kind of trudging our way through life and making ends meet and all, all of these things are covered for him. He has security from one end of his life uh, to the other, nothing that he can't afford to buy, anything that, that he, he would want. And yet he's a thinking person, and what he's thinking about is eternity. He's thinking about the life. He's thinking about death. He's thinking about what happens after death. And as we're going to see in a moment, those are rare thoughts in the minds, for the most part, of the rich. And so he realizes, wait a second, I'm uh, rich, I'm young, I'm a ruler, uh, I've got it made in all in terms of this life, but I know that death comes to all of us, and what do I have to do to secure myself in a comparable way related to everlasting life, life on the other side of the grave? So he's thinking, I, I think the marvel of angels in heaven 
is the almost utter absence of thought given to death and eternity within our culture. I mean, how few people stop at some moment in time, five minutes in their life, 30 seconds within a long life of three score and ten, and to stop and speak to myself and say, I'm not going to escape death any more than anybody else has escaped death, and how in the world do I prepare myself for this thing called death and the eternity that's going to usher me uh, into? And, and how few people stop and give that any serious consideration within our culture. He's remarkable in this way. And he does it not in his old age, he does it in his youth, which is even more remarkable. So he brings this most important question of all uh, to Jesus, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit everlasting life? To secure everlasting life on the right side of eternity after this life is done. And he's operating under the the firm conviction uh, that uh, inheriting everlasting life comes as a result of doing something. What shall I do that I may inherit everlasting life? And this guy's a go-getter. He's got his little peachy folder out in a pen, and he's ready to take notes for Jesus to tell him, do these things and you'll be all set. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one, no one, uh, no one is good but one, and that is uh, God. And, and, and then Jesus goes on and speaks of the fact, he says, you know the commandments. Uh, and he begins to quote now from the second tablet of the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The first law of Moses had to do with laws concerning man's relationship with God. The second tablet of the law, those six commandments, had to do with man's relationship uh, with his fellow man. And Jesus begins to quote those commandments off that tablet. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. So he lays these six commands uh, of the Ten Commandments out to the young man. And the young man answers and he says uh, to Jesus, teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. So he's not just rich and uh, young and a ruler and wise and thoughtful, but he's also moral. He is precisely the kind of person that everyone in the United States, virtually everyone that is ignorant of a Bible, would look and say, this guy's a shoo-in for uh, heaven at the end of this life. What in the world is he worrying about? You think Jesus would say, go on, you're doing great. I mean, if you don't make it, nobody's going to make it. And... And and he says, listen, since the time I was 12, since the time I had my bar mitzvah and became an adult in Jewish culture, I have kept all of those commandments, and and there's no reason to to doubt him at all. And then uh, uh, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, and I want you to see that repetition of the word him, looking at him, loved him, and said to him. Jesus did not say what he's about to say to this rich young ruler to every rich person that he met. It doesn't have a universal application. There are many rich people that Jesus ran into and many rich people who have wealth that does not become an obstacle to them coming to know God and walk with God and live for God. But Jesus recognized that this was going to be a real problem uh, for this, this young man. And so loving him, not trying to 
you know, humiliate him in front of a, a, a crowd, however small it might be, he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and then give the proceeds to the poor, and then you'll have treasure up in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. So he calls on the young man to do precisely that. What Jesus is doing, and you say, what in the world does this have to do with his question up in verse 17 in terms of everlasting life? Everlasting life is found in the final three words of verse 21, and that is following Jesus, becoming his disciple, and now becoming a follower of his in this life and in the life to come. And Jesus recognized that in the uniqueness of this young man's life, that his wealth would constitute a, 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 an insurmountable obstacle for him in and of himself to ever come to know God in a saving uh, way. And that the way that he was going to be able to walk, uh, come to know Christ, commit his life to Christ, walk with Christ in the way that, that he ought to, it would mean that he would have to jettison this wealth. And what Jesus is basically doing with the young man is the young man has passed the, passed the test of the second tablet of the law of the Ten Commandments of Moses. So Jesus now takes the test over into the first tablet that talks about uh, loving God supremely and having no other God before him. And now he calls on, now he puts his finger upon the one great thing in this young man's life that he loved more than God, and, he's, and the, the, the young man may not even be aware of it. Jesus, remember, loves him. He's going to make him aware of it right now because Jesus is aware of it. And so he tells him, listen, for you, in order for you to believe in me and become my disciple and what's involved in that, you need to sell what you have, give the proceeds to the poor, and you're going to have treasure in heaven and come take up your cross and follow uh, me. The young man was sad at this word, and uh, he went away in that same condition, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so you see him, he's on his knees in front of Jesus. The exchange occurs. He gets up when he hears the answer, and, uh, and Jesus has answered his question, and now he turns his back and he walks away. We don't know whether he repents later and changes his mind and does what Jesus called him to do. Uh, we have no uh, ending to this particular story. But the interesting thing is Jesus' response to him, and that is that Jesus doesn't run him down uh, the road. Whoa, 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 <laughs> wait a second. Oh, man, what God, I don't know what got into me. I can see I can't ask of you what, I mean, I can't make demands of you from the first tablet of the law. I mean, you're not up, you're not up to that. And so we're going we're gonna to grade this whole thing in terms of everlasting life on a curve. And it looks like you're doing the best you can. No, he lays it out. This is what's required. And he watches the young man uh, walk away. And the truth is the truth, and it doesn't change on the basis of how a person responds to that truth. Jesus spoke it lovingly to him, and what he does in being sad and sorrowful, turning his back and walking away from Jesus, what he does is actually confess the truthfulness of what Jesus commanded him to do. It was an evidence of the fact that this wealth was indeed 
the great obstacle that Jesus knew it to be for him ever to become one of his disciples. It, it was a witness and a testimony to the wisdom of Jesus to this young man. And then uh, Jesus looked around as the young man is uh, going off into the distance, and then he now uh, speaks to the disciples. He makes a teachable moment uh, out of it. And he said to the disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And uh, his disciples were astonished at his words. It is important to realize, you know, you turn on Christian television. I can't. I have such a bad attitude. Um, there's some good stuff on there, but what a bunch of hustlers. I mean, half of them. It's just awful. It's going to really be a bad scene uh, one day when that judgment uh, occurs. Not everybody, and I won't name names because I, 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 would, I wouldn't do it. But um, in, in the ancient world, we look at it today, and you've got this positive confession movement that goes on, and, uh, and, and the idea is that if you have enough faith that you're going to be rich. And they had kind of that same kind of view concerning the rich under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament. And the idea was, because of the law of Moses, spoke about if you obeyed God, that God would bless you, not only spiritually but materially. So people just automatically, no matter what kind of a life a person was living, if they were pr materially prosperous, it meant that, that uh, they had God's favor, that they were on the good side uh, of God, independent of, of the life that they lived. So they had their own kind of health and wealth doctrine that was going on in, in those days uh, as well. And so Jesus speaks here about how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God, and they've been taught all of their life that those are the very people who are going to inherit everlasting life. Because look at how God is blessing them. It's the poor that have something to worry about in this regard. They've got it all upside down as Jesus is going to let them uh, know. And Jesus answered again, and he said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And now Jesus puts his finger on it, doesn't he? Look in, look in verse 21 and, and, and circle it physically, or in your, at least in your mind. How hard it is for those who have, the word have, riches to be, to enter the kingdom of God. And then the latter part of verse 24, uh, the word trust. Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And one of the great challenges of wealth, apparently, I'm not an expert on this, but we are all wealthy as Americans by the world standard. But one of the problems with having great wealth is there is a tremendous tendency now to trust in that wealth rather than to, uh, to trust uh, in, to, uh, in God and to trust in God in any way, even spiritually. It's, it's an easy place in life to, to live very independent of God, to never see my need for God. So children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. And then is it, they're already astonished by what he's saying to them. And then he goes on in verse 25 and says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. 
And people talk, if you go to Israel, they talk about a, a gate in the walls of Jerusalem and the eye of the needle and a camel getting on its knees and getting through and so forth and all. And uh, the gate doesn't exist. Uh, Jesus is speaking, uh, uh, using language here. He's being quite literal, actually. Uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And as Gail Irwin has said, you can get a camel through the eye of a needle, but you've got to grind them up real fine. And it takes a lot of time. So it is hard work. Now, why does he talk about a camel? He doesn't say, I mean, there are bigger animals in the animal kingdom. You've got rhinoceroses and you've got elephants and these kind of things. Well, a camel was the largest animal that the average person in the land of Israel would ever uh, come across. So it's perfect for, uh, for, for the illustration. Well, having said this, they were uh, even more greatly astonished among themselves. And they said, who then can be saved? Again, the idea is the rich are a shoe-in. What, what, you know, and, and you're saying it's hard for them uh, to enter into uh, the, uh, the kingdom of, uh, of God. And Jesus looked at them and he said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. One of the things about uh, being poor or, let's say, um, living paycheck to paycheck and uh, living on a daily basis, on the basis of what we can earn and all, uh, we call, you know, the working poor or something like that, is that uh, one of the, the disadvantages is there are no kind of physical margins in life materially. But one of the things that it forces a person to do in that kind of a place is you're forced to trust in God. And, and you come to know God, and you come to trust in Him, and you come to pray to Him, and you come to look to Him for blessings in a way that a rich person feels no uh, need to. And so it's a real obstacle for rich people to become, uh, to become Christians, but it's not impossible. And if you sit here tonight and you are a wealthy person or an extraordinarily wealthy person and God puts you on some kind of a path that brought you to see your need for God and your need for Christ and you became saved, you were one hard case for God to get through. You would never have been saved. It would have been impossible except that all things are possible with God. And sometimes we look and... You know, you look at things in, they look at Christianity in the United States and around the world, and it's, you know, it's a, um, you know, they're all ignorant, and, you know, they uh, look at in terms of this area of our culture and how many have BA degrees or master's degrees or PhDs, and then you look at the same uh, kind of thing within, you know, professing Christians, and the level is so much, uh, you know, so much less typically, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, this Christianity is just kind of a nonsense you, you give up as you become more educated and, uh, and, and as you know, uh, know more. And, uh, and uh, uh, so I've just lost my thought related uh, to that. It'll be here in five minutes. Just Would the worship team just come forward? I'm just kidding. Um, But it, 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 these things can become tremendous obstacles to faith, and uh, not just wealth, but other things as well. 
And, uh, but nothing is impossible uh, with the Lord, and we're thankful for that. Uh, Peter, he's, he's tracking with Jesus like 100% here, and he realizes, wow, what this uh, rich young ruler uh, wasn't willing to do with Jesus uh, in terms of, uh, you know, giving everything up and becoming his disciple, uh, we've already done. And uh, so he's never going to, you know, let a moment like that pass without kind of piping up about it. So Jesus then, uh, Peter then says to Jesus, see, we've left all and, and we followed you. Everything you asked the rich young ruler to do, uh, we, we have done that. And so uh, what, what do we get out of it? We didn't get to hear the end of the story with the rich young ruler. What happens for us, uh, those of us who've done this? And Jesus answered and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels. And that goes on all around the world today where people give up everything in order to follow after uh, the Lord. Uh, or, and if not everything, significant parts of their life to do it. And he said, no one gives up any of these things in terms of material possessions and relationships who shall not receive a hundredfold one day when we get into heaven. That's not what he says. He said, now in this time, in this life, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands uh, with persecutions. And so what happens is that when we are born again and we become a part of the kingdom of God, Whatever we might lose materially as a result of that or lose in terms of relationships, we gain all that belongs to everyone who is in the body of Christ. We gain a, a great number of mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers and people who will speak into our lives and, and will uh, commit themselves to helping us and then share what they have with us and, and, uh, and so forth, coming in and becoming a part of of that family. I do think that verse 30 is, a, is really, um, I think it's a convicting passage. I think it's a convicting verse, especially for us as Western Americans. Because in the West, and, in, and nowhere more than in the United States, uh, we are very, very independent people. And, um, and for the most part, because uh, we've been born and raised in a nation that has a Judeo-Christian uh, ethic, the, and, and here we are, the, the, we haven't faced great persecution for our faith in the sense that it costs us these kind of relationships or costs us our wealth. Our wealth is not confiscated because we're as Christians. This happens a lot in other parts uh, of the world. And uh, so because that doesn't happen, we don't take seriously, I think, and I exhort myself tonight, and how it is that the body of Christ is supposed to operate in relationship to those who it does cost them all of this to become Christians. And that in losing all, sincerely to lose all in becoming a Christian, then what we have in terms of making room for them for relationships within our life, sharing uh, what material wealth we have to help them for the loss that they have so they can have food, shelter, and clothing. God, Jesus is bragging this up about the body of Christ. And so it, it means it ought to characterize 
of the body of Christ. And, and my opinion is, is that, that in, in the West we have a, a ways to grow in this, and, uh, and, and, and no doubt we will as, as more and more of this happens. And then he says, not only do you get all of that in this life, but in the age to come, uh, everlasting life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And here he is referring again to the rich young ruler who was first in this life, but without uh, doing what he ought to do, he'll end up last. And many who you can look at all around us in life, and it looks like they're last, but they're Christians. And actually, uh, they are first. Uh, that moment of death and heading into eternity, uh, nothing is clear this side of eternity in this regard. It will be instantaneously, absolutely clear at the moment of death of who is truly rich and who is truly poor in, in the light of eternity and in the eyes of God. Now, uh, they were on the road uh, walking, and they're making their way now uh, to uh, Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking before them, and they were amazed. And they, uh, uh, and they followed, as they followed, they were afraid. And so he, he took uh, the twelve aside again. Uh, they know there's hostility in Jerusalem awaiting uh, Jesus. And, and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him in Jerusalem. And he said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. This is what's coming, gentlemen. They're going to be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they're going to condemn him to death, and they're going to deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and scourge him and spit on him. Imagine Jesus saying this from his own mouth, what man is going to do to him, and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. And we've seen this progression in the gospel according to Mark as Jesus has continued to warn them about what he is going to face, and they will face as well as his followers when he gets to Jerusalem. And each time he describes what awaits him in Jerusalem, as that crucifixion gets closer and the resurrection, he describes it more graphically. And he describes it very graphically here, because we're going to see in very short order that he is in the final week of his life. And then James and John, the sons of thunder, or the sons of Zebedee, uh, they came uh, to Jesus. Now remember, Jesus has just spoken to the disciples about what he's going to face. I mean, you'd think it would produce some sobriety and some humility in you uh, as a result of that. But they, they came up to him, and we know from Matthew's gospel, they actually put their mother up to this. And uh, here's the question that they, uh, had, they posed to Jesus. Teacher. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, that's just like an insult. If somebody came up to me and said, that, now listen, I want you to agree to give me whatever I'm going to ask before I ask. Do I look stupid? And if I look stupid, could you tell me how I could improve my looks on this? Who in the world is going to agree to give somebody what they're going to ask for before they know what they're asking for? And so Jesus uh, said to them, uh, what do you want me to do for you? What do you got in mind, uh, gentlemen? 
And then he said, they said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, uh, in your glory, in your kingdom. Oh, all right, that's a little more than a can of Pepsi and a bag of Cheetos. You guys are in the big leagues in terms of what you're asking for. So they come up to Jesus with straight face. They don't want to earn it. They, they, want to, they want to manipulate Jesus into it. They want to sneak it uh, on him. Uh, they sent their mother, and the reason they sent their mother was in that ancient culture, there was such respect for older women uh, that they could make more headway than a younger uh, person could. And so that, that's what they, they, why they uh, did it that way. And so they're asking, listen, in, when you establish your kingdom, your glory, and they're still thinking of his kingdom as a physical kingdom. Not, they're not clear on the eternal kingdom side of things at this point. When this gets established, could we have uh, the throne that is on your right hand and the throne that is on your left hand? We're not asking much. Just the two most powerful positions in your kingdom under you. That's what they're asking for. That's uh, interesting. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. In other, in, he's the, they know what they're asking. They just don't understand the implications of it. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And what he's referring to is verses 33 and 34 here, talking about what he's going to endure at the hands of Jews and Gentiles uh, in his crucifixion, in his burial, and, and in his resurrection. Are you up to that? I've already told you, I'm the king of a kingdom. This is what they're going to do to the king. What do they do to the two people at the right and left hand, hand of the, the king? They're going to do exactly what I've told you they're going to do to me. Are you up to that? Didn't you listen to what I'm, I'm telling you is right around the corner in terms of my, my future? And they said, we are able and Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I uh, drink. And uh, with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. And, and it was true. Uh, James would ultimately become a martyr uh, uh, as a Christian leader within the church and as apostle. And uh, John is the only uh, one of the 12 disciples who did not die a martyr's death. But it wasn't for trying. Uh, ultimately, he ends up on the isle, uh, island of Patmos for a long period of time in exile. Uh, we're told that uh, the Roman uh, uh, emperor attempted to put him to death, uh, church tradition says, by putting him in a vat of, of boiling oil, uh, but he survived that. But John lives on to, to, die, uh, uh, to, to die a natural death. Uh, but he, he went through quite a baptism for the rest of his life, a baptism of suffering. But Jesus said, to sit at my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. That's the Father's decision. Now, it is interesting, isn't it? Somebody, some two people are going to sit in those positions from among the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. And it will be remarkable. I know I'm going to be in the nosebleed uh, uh, section absolutely uh, in heaven. And uh, uh, it's, not, it's not that I'm not trying for this the best that I can, but it will ultimately be interesting to watch um, who ends up 
in those positions. And Jesus now, as he continues to instruct them, he's, he's going to um, uh, give the qualification for who ends up both in those two positions and ends up in any uh, place of significance or in significance meaning influence in the kingdom of God, even in this life, as, as, he, as he continues on. And then we're told in verse 41 that the, when the ten, the other ten apostles, heard what James and John uh, tried to do, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John, as you might imagine. So now they go, and the language is very interesting that Mark uses here, and when the ten heard it. So they go all the way through. It's the twelve, the twelve, the twelve, and the twelve is a reference to the apostles. They're no longer the twelve now after these shenanigans. Now they're the ten and two. And that's what happens. This is a pure power play. It's selfish ambition, and, and it's, it's, it's just kind of a raw power grab that they do. And any time a person does this in the world, it displeases everybody who sees it because they see someone who is trying to take unfair advantage of the situation to cut to the front of the line that everyone else is working hard to get to the front of. It's unfair. And, and nowhere does it stick out like a thumb more than when it happens in the kingdom of God when it happens among Christians, when somebody tries just a raw power play, selfish ambition, and I'm going to try and grab the top spots within a church or within a Christian organization or whatever it might be, and, and, and tries to get into those positions on this kind of a basis rather than uh, the basis that Jesus calls us uh, to do that. Anybody that does what these two guys are doing, is a, it's an automatic, um, it's a dead giveaway that they are the last persons who ought to be put in those two positions. And when you see a power play in a church or you see someone try to grab power and try and get into positions on boards or whatever it might be in a, in a typical church and they are gunning for those positions... The, the wisest thing you can look, do is look at it and say, that person using those methods is the last person you want to give any kind of authority to in anything that has to do with the kingdom of God until they get this thing straightened out between uh, them and, and God. So whenever this kind of thing happens within a church or within the body of Christ as a whole, it always does what it, uh, we see it doing here in verse 41, and that is it creates division, and it creates bitterness and, uh, and a, a real righteous anger. Uh, Jesus recognizes the dynamic, of course, and so he called all of them uh, to himself, and he's going to make it another teachable moment for them. And he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority uh, over them. So you take any kind of uh, 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 authority or a power structure in the world and on an org chart, and it looks something like this. It looks something like um, a pyramid. And, uh, the, and, and your power is directly proportional to how far you up are up on the line. And your power is directly proportional to the number of people you have under you serving you. And that's how power operates. 
And, uh, and that's the way the world operates. That's the way the Gentiles operate. That's what James and John were trying to do here, is to move up into that place, secure these positions, and, and, uh, and have other people serving him, them. But Jesus says, the kingdom of God does not operate in this way at all. He said, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, that is in the kingdom of God, shall be your servant. And whoever desires, and whoever, uh, 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 whosoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And so Jesus says, my kingdom, in the kingdom of God, uh, we don't deal in power. What we deal with is influence. And a person's influence in the kingdom of God is an upside-down uh, uh, triangle. And a person's influence in the kingdom of God is directly proportional to the number of people they are under and serving. And that's how the kingdom of God operates. It doesn't operate on the basis of power. It operates on the basis of influence. And you can have people who are very, very uh, powerful in the world, and they have no influence over people's hearts. They will get outward conformity from a person because they have the power to fire you or they have the power to punish you in some way or reward you. So you will get uh, outward conformity from them, but you will never win a person's heart solely on the basis of power. And the interesting thing about the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is not interested supremely in outward conformity among people. What God is after is people's hearts. And he knows for us as Christians, we will never become an influence for God in people's hearts from a power structure, but solely from a, 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 the position of a servant. Because when a person serves other people, and I become your servant, and, I, and a servant is one who makes life better for another person, when I become your servant, you recognize that I'm not a threat to you in any way, and you begin to trust me. And then now when something happens in your life and somebody needs to speak into your life and then I speak in, into it, I'm not coming from a power place. I'm, I now have an influence in your life that you have given to me by virtue of trusting me by virtue of the fact that I have been a servant to you and shown that I'm not interested in anything else from you except your welfare. And this is one of the great things that I think for us as Christians in the United States of America, we, we just, we're growing in it. We're, we're, doing, we're, we're growing into this principle, but we're going to need to continue to grow into it. God is not interested in power. He is interested in influence in people's lives that can only come by way of servanthood. And 50 years ago, 60 years ago in the United States of America, Christians, we dominated we absolutely dominate. We dominated elections. We dominated uh, politics. We uh, dominated industry. We dominated the power structures of the United States of America. And all of that has changed now on us in the last 60 years. And we no longer have the kind of power that we once had. And so we lament it. 
Look what's happening to us. We're losing all of our power. We're not going to have any ability to influence the world. And what we don't realize, that in losing power, we've never lost our influence. In fact, it's driven us to the position of of influence that we've never known before. And, And we're learning this. And to lament the kind of power we used to have to be able to dictate outward conformity in people's lives by putting pressure on them and power upon them, that's gone. And now if we want to change people's lives, be an influence for the kingdom of God in people's lives, it comes through servanthood. Because people will trust people who serve them and work for their good. And then they will listen to them when they speak into their life. And this is a very significant principle that Jesus is speaking, and very timely for us as Christians in in the United States at this point in time. And then he uh, uh, declares, so, uh, and uh, again, we, we gain influence, not just in the world, but with one another, influence within uh, a local church body. It, it comes through servanthood. Very often, you can look at, 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 at go to a local church, anywhere, anyone you want to go to, and you look in there and you look at who's got all of the titles. And if they're servants, they'll have great influence within that body. But sometimes you can have people who have a title within a church, within a church, and they're not servants. But you watch when people get in trouble where they go for help, and they don't go to the people who operate on the basis of power. They go to the servants because they recognize that influence has been given to the servant. And, uh, and Jesus closes all of this uh, importantly uh, by declaring, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, as he speaks to the twelve apostles, gentlemen, uh, the only way to operate like I operate, to be like me, is to operate in, in this way. And I've come into the world as a servant, and I wear that badge and that mantle to such a degree toward this world that I am, I am going to give my life as a ransom for many. Now, they came to Jericho, again, making their way to uh, Jerusalem, and they're not far from it now as they come to Jericho. And as Jesus went out of Jericho with his disciples, he's making his way through the city, and he's, and he's on, making his way out now at this point. And he's with his disciples, and there's a great multitude that is uh, following him. And there's a, there were two men, we know from another gospel, but Mark focuses on one of the men by the name of Bartimaeus. And blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, he sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth that was coming through uh, the city, uh, his reaction is very, very powerful. Now, you, you put yourself in the position of blind Bartimaeus, as he is, is described here. Those are the very words that are ascribed to him. When, when you are blind, your uh, ears become both your eyes and your ears. And uh, you, you can guarantee that as he sits in his place that he, he begs in, in Jericho uh, every single day, he knows the rhythm of the entire week. He doesn't have to see it. He knows on Monday, these are the sounds. On Tuesday, 
These are the sounds. The garbage trucks come. On Wednesday, and, and there's a whole rhythm to a city, and they recognize everything, and they recognize any kind of change in the atmosphere of the normal of, of the rhythm. And, and, uh, and so he recognizes that. The other thing that blind Bartimaeus, uh, without a doubt, is aware of, you know, the homeless have a network. Um, people that were blind or handicapped in the way that Bartimaeus was in, in the ancient world, there's a network. Anywhere there's people in a special condition, they have a network. Uh, nothing happens except very quickly that news spreads throughout the entire network because they know they need one another. And so you can be sure every blind person, every deaf person, every dumb person, unable to speak, whatever it might be in the entire land of Israel had heard about Jesus. And if you ever hear of him coming near, this guy has the ability to solve all of your problems in terms of healing you physically. And so he hears all this commotion going on and, uh, and then he hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, he can't even believe that this is happening for him. I mean, the emotion of the whole passage is fabulous. And he begins to cry out. And in the original language, I mean, he is yelling at the top of his lungs. And, he, and somehow he is going to get Jesus to hear him and to stop and take a note of his need. And he cried out and he said, Jesus, son of David, and he recognizes him as the Messiah in that title, have mercy on me. And notice the reaction of people that were around him in the crowd. And then many warned him to be quiet. And the Greek is, is very, very strong. I mean, they are scolding him to, you know, quiet down. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus stood still, and he commanded him to be called. And then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. <laughs> Can you imagine the emotion he's feeling at that moment? He heard you, and he's asking for you. And so throwing aside his garment, and his garment would have been a special garment that beggars uh, wore that allowed them to uh, use it to capture coins, and he has a sense he's not going to need this anymore. And he throws aside his garment, and he rose, and he came to Jesus. And so Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And it's like, um, I'll give you three guesses. So why would Jesus do that? Because he wants him to speak it in faith. He wants it, him to communicate it so that when Jesus now heals him of his blindness, it'll be in response to something that he has specifically asked for. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, uh, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road, an indication that he had not merely received physical healing from Jesus, but now a spiritual healing as well. He becomes one of uh, Jesus' uh, disciples. A beautiful, beautiful <laughs> yeah, um, uh, lesson here 
in never allowing the crowd to determine what you do with Jesus and in calling out to him and coming uh, to him. This was a Jewish crowd. This was a, a religious crowd trying to tamp down his faith, and he wouldn't have anything uh, to do with it. And, uh, and he kept crying out in faith until he was heard. And, of course, that's always uh, rewarded. Let's stand together now, and we'll close this evening with a worship song. If you're here this evening and you have never, ever trusted in this Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, we will be up in front immediately after the service, and we would love to pray with you and for you, for you to begin the relationship with God that you have been uh, created for. And it's all there for the asking all there for the receiving because Jesus has done all the heavy lifting and providing this salvation in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. If you need prayer for anything this evening, uh, these same men and women would love to pray with you and would love to pray for you. Let me close us in prayer now. Father, we thank you for this chapter and all of these, the way that Mark just gives us all of these snapshots and glimpses of Jesus' ministry and order to look at him from every angle of his life and, and to see the wisdom that came out of his life and all of these circumstances and how timeless that wisdom is. And we pray, Lord, that you would use our time tonight in your word to affirm the things in our life that are strong and look like what Jesus calls us to be as, your, as his disciples. And wherever we are weak, Lord, if all of the relationships in our life are ones that are one-sided and everybody serves us and we serve nobody in our marriage and with our children and in our workplace and in the church, Lord. We want the Word to have an effect on us that makes changes in these things so that we can become like Him. And Father, we pray for that work of Your Holy Spirit. Ask for Your blessing upon us as we head out uh, into this new week and to explore the greatness of your promises to us, Lord, on whatever mountaintop or valley or anything in between that awaits us this week. And Father, we thank you with tonight, with the whole Tyson family. We thank you with Maggie here tonight and Anna, and we thank you for the good news of Don's surgery with this hip. We thank you for the miracle that his life is and we pray that you bless him with healing in his body that continues to be supernatural as he uh, learns to walk once again with this surgery. And we look forward, Lord, to seeing him once again sitting with us in this very room. We pray that you continue to cover this family, bless this family, keep this family in every way. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.